So I'd like to uh, offer a talk and um, congratulations. Um, we've been here now uh, for 23 hours and 30 minutes, actually 28 to be, since we started. And for some of us, it might feel like already it's been a month. And for others, perhaps just a few moments. It's amazing, the perception of things. Can you all hear me okay back there? Okay, good. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I just want to just really acknowledge um, our commitment, our care. Teachers, we've been talking a bit, just just wanting just to acknowledge. It just feels like from really the get-go, there's a certain quiet. Uh, with all of us, uh, feel the sincerity of ourselves sitting together, and we're, so I believe I speak for all of us, and that we're moved with your uh, sincerity of practice, and um, it's inspiring. And this is a, again, when we speak about the Sangha, the community. So quite literally, it can refer to the enlightened community or the the monastic community, but also um, we're part of this lineage in the broader way of those that are supporting each other to awaken. So this sense of community, sangha. It was very important in Dharma practice, the, the community. In the suttas, there's a, there's a gathering. There's a, in, in a sutta, there's a story that uh, there was a large gathering of people practicing together, and Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, commented to the Buddha looking out at the gathering, saying that um, the Sangha, the community, is half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, Ananda, it is the whole of the holy life. And sometimes we can just feel that, the sense of us just being together, practicing together in the silence, yet it's speaking so clearly and warmly of uh, wanting to support each other. And so I hope that um, you feel that more and more, the sense of our community supporting each other. We're really willing to um, take a look at what's inside and this is not always um, the case. This willingness to to look within, and often in the ways of the world, um, it's looking outside. And there's always kind of a very uh, haunting reading that um, Saint Augustine commented upon about in these ways of the world. This was written in the year 399. So it's 2019, 399 was a long time ago. Is that people wonder and travel to see the height of the mountains, wonder at the huge waves of the seas, wonder at the long courses of the rivers, wonder at the vast compass of the ocean and the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. 
walking right past themselves without ever wondering. It was very haunting to me. And perhaps in the ways of the world, there is times where we're walking right past without ever wondering, what is this? My son is um, getting his uh, PhD in astrophysics. His area is uh, dark, um, dark energy. <laughs> and I asked him once, Ben, what's dark energy? He says, we don't know. <laughs> but it's some type of an energy that's been identified that's expanding the universe. And then I said, but what do you mean expanding the universe? I mean, what's behind the universe? Isn't there just more universe behind the universe? So how, how can you, um, how do you know about that? And he says, don't know. I love that. <laughs> the mystery. But evidently they can tell through um, exploding stars, supernovas, and they act as buoys, he says, that mark that you can tell from one nova, supernova to another, you, you can tell some way you can begin to measure the expansion of the universe. But I love and, uh, you know, this is pointing to the great mystery. And sometimes in the everyday affairs of life, um, getting lost in the everyday affairs and um, and the science reminds us of the mystery of things. The Dharma also reminds us of this great mystery of, uh, you know, who are we? This has been one of the perennial questions for eons. Who are we? What are we? What is life? What is death? Who am I? These are all very powerful questions to sit with, to hold, to be with. And I'm very glad that... Um, you're here this week to perhaps sit with some of these questions. The world will help you very much convinced that this is the world, but we're beginning to question what is this world? What is behind these lenses and filters of how we see things? And how we identify and define ourselves and who we are and perhaps um, this investigation is questioning, beginning to see through these lenses, these filters. It takes a certain quality of willingness to sit with ourselves, to begin to see more clearly. And at first, when we begin to sit with ourselves, um, it may not seem to be so clear. And particularly in the first day or two of practice, um, we may um, experience a lot of unclarity. There's a reading from uh, Bhante Gunaratana. 
He wrote a very beautiful, very down-to-earth, very practical book called, uh, he's written a number of books, but this one I'm referring to is called Mindfulness in Plain English. Really superb book. But he writes in it that he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. That your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. But he says, it's not a problem. Uh-uh, no problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but we just haven't noticed. So not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps you're even wiser, because at least you know that you're crazy, where yesterday you might not have known that. Not a problem. But this sitting with ourselves, um, actually, Hafiz says, is, uh, if you're normally sedated, it may not be so great to sit with yourself. And he says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone and maybe three to five, seven days in your closet. That would do it. And that means not leaving, and you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches, and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, no writing, no writing poems, no painting. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the 360-degree detox, though the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But he says, don't, he says, dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. But there's a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. And this ruby we could uh, refer to as the jewel of the Dharma, the jewel of wisdom, the jewel of insight, the jewel of seeing through the stories that have enslaved us. It involves a sense of being willing to sit with ourselves. Very courageous notion to sit with ourselves with sometimes what we call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Perhaps that's why Hafiz says this is not recommended if you're normally sedated. This sitting with ourselves, we begin to see, um, you know, the heavens and the hells. I often think of meditation as sitting in a, in a, a room full of mirrors and all you see is me, myself, and I. Ay, 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 ay. Very transparent, very um, raw, vulnerable to sit with ourselves. And the ways of the world will, of course, entice you to do this and to do that. Why come to a meditation retreat, not talk to anyone, no writing, no reading for seven days? That's crazy. Pablo Neruda, Chilean poet, um, he writes a poem called Keeping Quiet, and it's a longer poem, and he speaks about uh, what would the world be like if we could just stop for 12 seconds. In, inside this poem, there's a couple of lines that just, um, to me, give one of the most exquisite and eloquent reasons on why we would stop why we would stop and to begin to look inwards. 
This is just beautiful words that he's put together. And this is, of course, an English translation in Spanish. It must be even more gorgeous. But he says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. And so we willingly and knowingly, all of us have entered into the huge silence within ourselves and together. And perhaps as we begin to sit with ourselves, begin to make peace with ourselves, that huge silence begins to help us to understand ourselves, which is the gateway to freedom and peace, is understanding. So we've entered into this huge silence together. We're not um, wandering away from ourselves, but wandering into ourselves, entering into this huge silence together. You know, the clock is ticking. And so today's, um, what I want to speak about is inspiration of uh, what brings us to practice. And the clock is ticking. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. From Faith Baldwin, time as a dressmaker. It specializes in alterations. From Mary Jane Block, everything takes longer than everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would. Except your life. Everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would except your life. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. I just got my Medicare card about a month ago. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. Never thought I'd look forward to a Medicare card, but my insurance, health insurance will get cheaper. But powerful, I got a Medicare c- card now. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. There is no holding on to this time. My kids have grown up, one of them is married. Can feel the years, 65 years. I once asked my teacher, when he turned 80, how fast has 80 years gone by, Seattle? And he looked at me and smiled and went like this. 
80 years. Tick tock, tick tock. Jane Kenyon, she writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And he ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. And I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. One day I know it will be otherwise. An old friend of mine who died some years ago, her name was Gail. She wrote this reflection about herself. She had been given a six month under prognosis, had liver cancer. So she writes, greeting precious friends. So as the days of winter continue to nourish the earth with the fluid from the skies, I've begun to contemplate my situation that I find myself in. There is this undercurrent of experience that I'm just waiting around to die. Strange thing when you are told that your time is limited and that many future projections just disappear from your consciousness. So now I'm left with this question of being fully awake to each passing day, hour, and minute. And old habits are really hard to change. So often I find myself just wasting time. Granted, I have a lot more now with time to meditate and to be still. But my mind keeps questioning just what I could be doing with this time that I have left. I wonder if this is just the patterns of behavior that are familiar to me, keeping busy, doing good works, all of the messages that I have followed in my past. Now, though, I am too tired to do much. So the dilemma is allowing myself to let go of the old messages and discover new ways to enrich the time that I have left. This, my friends, is my challenge and my grace. I never realized how stubborn I am about who I think I am. And so this weaker and more vulnerable me is trying to learn about allowing myself to just let go of the past and really step into this moment. From Gail Lewis.
Tick-tock. 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 This was supposedly written by a New York City taxi driver. He writes that I arrived at the address and I honked the horn and after waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Well, I put the car um, in park and shut it off and I decided to walk up to the door and gave it a knock and I heard um, a voice calling out, just a minute. And it sounded like a frail and elderly voice and I could hear something being dragged across the floor. And after a long pause, I opened the door. After, after a long pause, the door opened. And there in front of me was a small woman in her 90s. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon, nylon suitcase. And the apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. And in the corner, there was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you mind to carry my bag out to the car, she asked me. And I took the suitcase to the curb, and then I returned to assist the woman. And she took my arm, and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness, and I told her it's nothing. I just want to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? I've got an 89-year-old mommy. I would want a taxi cab driver like her. And she said to me, you're such a good boy. And when we got to the cab, she gave me the address, and then she asked me, could, could you drive through downtown? And I said to her quickly, that's not the shortest way. And she said, I don't mind. I'm not in a hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror, and her eyes were glistening, and she said that I don't have any family left. And the doctor says I don't have that long. I reached over and I shut off the taxi meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked her. And for the next two hours, we drove through the city and she showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. And we drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. And she pulled me over in front of a furniture house that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow down in front of a particular building or a corner, and she'd just sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of the sun was creasing on the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. And so we slowly drove in silence to the address that she had given me. Two orderlies came out of the cab I opened up the trunk and took out the small suitcase and brought it to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair and she asked me, how much do I owe you? Reaching into her purse 
And I said, nothing. And she said, you have to make a living. And I responded that there are other passengers. And almost without thinking, I just bent and I gave her a hug and she held on to me tightly. And she said, you just gave an old woman a little moment of joy. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and I walked into the dim morning light. And behind me, it felt as if a door had been shut. It's like the sound of a closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could barely talk. And I thought to myself, what if that woman had got an angry driver or one who was impatient? What if I had refused to take her or honked the horn once or just left? You know, on a quick review, I began to realize that I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think at times that our lives resolve around great moments, but great moments are often, great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may seem to be a small one. These moments of great kindness, these moments of great heart, these moments of realizing of the preciousness and the fragility of this life. That reading, even though I've read it so many times, gets me always a little teary-eyed. I know it might be hard for some of us to hear I'm talking a lot about death. And didn't he say this was supposed to be a talk about inspiration <laughs> to practice? <laughs> My wife jokes with me, Bob, you should just call the retreat. Never mind insight meditation retreat. You should just call it you're going to die retreat. <laughs> but maybe no one would show up. <laughs> but actually, if you're interested in you're going to die retreat, where I'm actually going to be teaching retreat at Spirit Rock um, <laughs> called Maranasati, the mindfulness of death. It's a week long on the mindfulness of death with uh, Eugene Cash in the, in the springtime. We'll see if anybody shows up. <laughs> I'm glad we can laugh a little bit about it with the tears. But I bring this up, and, and it is meant intentionally to be inspiring because this is what really brought Siddhartha Gautama out of the palace and to later become an awakened being, a Buddha. I love this story about how the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who later became a Buddha, and Siddhartha Gautama was a prince born in this very wealthy family nearly 2,600 years ago and was destined to become a great king. Their wealth, they could have anything that they wanted, and you know, Siddhartha grew up in palaces in each season, beautiful palaces, 
all of the education, all of the sensual uh, ways of, um, they were very fulfilling for him for 29 years of his life. He was destined to become a great king and he could just enjoy his wealth, his power, and all sensual desires would be fulfilled and fame and name and everything. And his father um, really made sure that he was majorly receiving all of these pleasures because when Sir Arthur was born, it's very customary in India to, um, particularly in the royal families, but even outside of the royal families, to look at the signs of these infants, the size of their ears and their arms and their legs and the different anatomical signs and give predictions. And said there was a group of uh, five of these uh, astrologers, uh, holy people that could read these signs, and four of them gave the great predictions that he will become a great king. But the youngest one, Kodanya, said, no, he ain't going to become no king. He's going to become a Buddha. And King Sudona didn't like that idea that his son was going to become a Buddha. And so out of this apprehension, even though this was the youngest of these sages and the others were, you know, very esteemed and known and loved and had all given predictions of him to become a great Buddha, um, the, the king was very cautious and um, got really kind of apprehensive about his son leaving and becoming a Buddha. And so intentionally really made sure that he was going to be experiencing all of the sensual delights and name and fame and everything that anyone could ever want to make sure that he would be very happy. And so the story goes that he lived this way for 29 years, living in this world of splendor and sense gratification and power and fame and everything. And um, one day in his 29th year, it was like this, I all of a sudden had this calling to go out into the kingdom to check things out a bit. It's almost as if he hadn't been out of the palace or maybe he'd been out of the palace, but living in such a dream world, didn't see anything. But for this occasion, he wanted to go out and kind of just maybe his eyes to see something, something was calling to him. And so he went out with his charioteersman, we could probably say his Uber driver at this point, um, Chana was his name, and um, they went out of the palace into the kingdom, and and perhaps Sid Arthur's eyes opened in such a way, or maybe this dream world just lessened just a little bit, and he came across someone that was really old, probably somebody getting to look like me, (laughs) or like my mom for sure. And um, and he asked Chana, who is this person? This, you know, the hair was gray and partly fallen out, and you know, the complexion was different. And who is this? This is and and Chana said, this is a person that is old. And Sarah said, old? What do you mean, old? He goes, yes. If you live long enough, you you get old. You age. No one can escape from aging. 
and it was kind of like a thorn, like a bullseye, like a, a stab into the heart. No one can escape for aging. This very much upset Siddhartha. So he went back to the palace and just kind of shaken. No one can escape with aging. But again, he get very easy to get lost in all these wonderful things. And so this went on for a while. And But then again, there's this calling to him to come once again out into the kingdom. And so he went out again with, with uh, Chana. And there he came across a person that was really ill. Really ill. And somehow the father, wanting to live a very, you know, a protective life around Siddhartha, uh, didn't let Siddhartha see of these ills of life. Or also, again, perhaps being in this dream world, he, he maybe there was aging and illness in front of him, but he didn't was willing to see it. But this time, the second um, going out into the kingdom, he got it. And China said to him, "No one can escape from illness." And it was like another stab in the heart. No one can escape from illness. Himself or his, his family, his friends, everyone. So this too caused a lot of uh, anguish within him. These realizations. So he came back to the palace and he was forlorn and um, you know, time went by and pleasures perhaps weren't as enjoyable as they once were. And again, he went out for another outing. And this time he came across a dead body, a corpse. And Siddhartha could see this person was not moving. They're not breathing. The color of the body was different. Siddhartha put the hand on the body. It was cold to touch. Brings a memory of when I touched my father after he died. He was cold to touch. This type of cold that doesn't go away. You can still feel it. Chana said to Siddhartha that, yes, no one can escape from death. This was a great um, penetration into Siddhartha's heart, coming very forlorn. What is the use of all of these things, this fame and name and wonderful things, if it's going to all end like this? And was very, very upset. Well, he decided to go out one more time <clears throat> with Chana. And in this particular occasion, he came across like a sage, a hermit, a yogi, a sannyasin, a wanderer, a monk, a nun. 
And this particular person, Siddhartha had never seen this type of person before. This person, the way they were walking was so graceful and mindful. The face and the, the, the there was something about the face of this person that had some type of serenity, like that this person might know something about life. Siddhartha asked Shana, who, who is this type of person? I never saw a person like this before. And Shana said, this is a person that's dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. And Siddhartha heard that. Really? There's people that do this? Dedicating their whole life to understanding the meaning of life. And Siddhartha knew right away, this is what I must do, what I have to do. This is the only thing that makes sense to me. These are what are known <clears throat> in the Dharma teachings as the four heavenly messengers. Now, often we think of heavenly as something wonderful, and it's maybe not so heavenly to meet aging, illness, and death, but they're called heavenly because they awaken within us what is this life. And the fourth heavenly messenger is pointing that maybe there is a way to understand it. And I really feel every one of us here in this room has already met these messengers. We may have not given them that type of name and maybe not even saw them as something that we would consider to be heavenly. But heavenly in the sense from the Dharma point of view because it's pointing to us this preciousness and this fragility of life and maybe there's a way to enter into the huge silence, to begin to listen, to begin to understand ourselves, to begin to make some sense of this. I believe that you all have met these messengers. I don't think that you could actually be here in this room, in this retreat, if you haven't already met them. Otherwise, it would make no sense to be here. And perhaps each of us has been touched. Of course, you know, you look in the mirror, you look different than when you were born. And if you don't believe me, go look in the mirror later today. <laughs> and each of us, I trust, has, has had some illnesses. And of course, we know others that have been ill. And of course, we know others that have aged. Although maybe our body hasn't physically died yet, it's changing all the time. And actually, um, our organs and everything of our body, within seven years, everything changes. So the same skeleton that you have now, seven years ago, was a different skeleton. A stomach is replacing itself, the, the linings, every, every week and a half. Otherwise, it'll eat itself. The body is constantly changing. And of course... Um, I trust every one of us here has been touched by death one way or another. There's a story <clears throat> of a woman named Kisa Gotemi and her baby died and she refused to acknowledge that the baby had died and so she just carried it with her. 
And of course, part of her knew that the baby was dead, but she didn't want to acknowledge that. And she also had some, you know, some possible hope. Maybe someone could bring my baby back to life. And so she'd travel to this wise person, to that wise person, to magicians, whoever, to, you know, get her baby alive again. But she um, couldn't find anyone to help. Finally, um, someone said, the Buddha will definitely help you. So she got some hope. Okay, I'm going to get my baby back. And so she went to the Buddha and she said, um, she told him what had happened. And the Buddha said, I can get your baby back if you give me, get me one mustard seed. Well, in India, mustard seeds is a very much a staple in helping to, you know, with cooking and so forth. And so um, she's thanked him so much. It's very easy. The first house I go to, I'm going to get some mustard seed. I'm going to bring it back and everything will be fine. And the Buddha also said, get me a mustard seed from a house that hasn't experienced any death. But she didn't quite hear that too well. And so, but she was just mustard seed, mustard seed. I'm going to go get a mustard seed. And so she went to the first house and they had tons of mustard seeds. And so the person gave her a mustard seed and she thanked him and said, oh, I'm going to get my baby. And, and, and then she's, then she said, oh, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the Buddha said to me, um, you, do, have you ha experienced any death in, in your house? And this one person, the first person says, why did you ask me that? I just lost my husband last year. So she had to give back the mustard seed. She went from house to house to house. Everywhere she went, they were touched by death. And so she realized that her baby was gone. And she, she came back to the Buddha and she understood his teaching. And the Buddha was like a, the fourth heavenly messenger to her, and she decided to become ordained. The Buddha was pointing that there's a way. And she became a full, enlightened being through her practice, pointing there's perhaps another way to begin to make sense of things. Probably in the week <clears throat> to come here, we'll maybe share more about this journey of Siddhartha Gautama, who eventually did leave the palace. His father begged him not to go, begged him not to go. And actually, Siddhartha Gautama uh, was also married, and um, you know the. the the, the, his wife was going to be expecting a child. He was so, Siddhartha was so upset inside. There's actually a Pali word. Sometimes these Pali words, they can just be one word, but it's like a whole paragraph to explain what it means. Powerhouse word. So this powerhouse word is called samwega. Samwega means when you realize that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. There's just nothing more important than to awaken and to understand the meaning of life. And you could say that he had the Samwega consciousness big time. He also knew, being in this royal and very wealthy family, that 
his wife was going to be cared for and his child and all. And a very painful moment, of course. Very painful moment. And it's also said after he attained his enlightenment, he came back to the palace, to his wife, to his son. You know, and all these stories go, and they got enlightened and they all lived happily ever after as well. <laughs> but I like the story that he comes back and they do get enlightened. He comes back. He was a family man after all. Came back and gave them the royal inheritance and it was not money. It was the royal inheritance of the Dharma of liberation. So the story goes, he left the palace. His father begged him to stay and said, I can promise you anything. And the Siddhartha said, all right, yeah. Um, can you prevent me from getting sick and getting ill and dying? And King couldn't do it, even though he had all the money in the world. So the story goes, he, for six years, traveled from teacher to teacher, learning all these different meditation practices and teachings. And at that time, it was very prevalent in India of there's a particular type of meditation called um, concentration, developing absorption in Pali jhana. Very refined states of absorption, becoming at one with an object, becoming unified. Um, the results of these type of practices bring great tranquility, serenity, calmness, unification. And often Siddhartha, being such a, a great and adept student of meditation, um, teacher would say at a certain point, you've learned everything that needs to be learned and come and sit near me and, and we'll teach more. But there's still this sense of Siddhartha still didn't understand what is this life. Yes, could calm his mind, could become unified at one with objects. Experience great happiness, serenity, boundlessness, space, infinite, infinite space. But still there was something that wasn't quite understanding about suffering and its causes and the path to, to understanding it. So traveling from teacher to teacher, practice to practice, eventually traveling to, with a group of five ascetics that were into self-mortification, punishing the body, that this was believed the way to really understand suffering. So he suffered with these practices and practiced extreme self-mortification, reducing his sense of food intake down to one grain of rice a day until eventually he became skeletal. The story goes, you put his hand on his belly and almost feel his tailbone. And at the brink of collapse, realizing he was close to collapsing and dying, that this too was not the way to understanding the meaning of life and left these five ascetics and um, was offered some food by a woman named Sujata that offered him some healing foods and began to regain his sense of health and well-being. 
And the story goes that he, once restoring his health, he came upon a beautiful tree and decided to take his seat at this tree, the foot of this tree, and took a resolve that um, he was not going to leave this tree, that he had been to so many teachers, practiced and learned so many different teachings, and that it was time for him to stay by himself with his own experience. Even if my skin rolls off my body and my flesh melts away, I will not leave this tree until I discover the truth of life. Quite a commitment, <laughs> quite a resolve. But again, traveling for six years, studying with all these teachers and teachings and self-mortification, and finally, I, I get to sit here for myself. And it said as he took <clears throat> his seat, <clears throat> as he took his seat, he at one point uh, recalled the memory of when he was younger, maybe a child or so. And um, he recalled in that memory that it was a very beautiful day. We get a lot of these beautiful days here in Santa Cruz where the weather's just right and can be on a hillside looking out at the forests and the valleys. And it's just like, you know, we're so lucky here at times. We can, it must have had this, this beautiful, this memory of this beautiful place and just, just, um, feeling at one with the universe. He was recalling this memory. His mind was actually just slipping into some type of absorption. But not fully, because he began to also remember that on one place from the tree, he was looking down at a, at a agricultural field and where there was some farmers there and and there was some oxen and plow, and, and they were going to begin to turn the soil over because it was that time of the year to turn the soil over, plant seeds. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened that when he saw the plow blade dig into the earth, he could almost sense and feel the cries of the worms crying in agony, the pain. So he was recalling this memory after so many years of living in this dream world that he had forgotten. Recalling this memory of this juxtaposition about life that I think we all know at times of its beauty and its profound sadness, heartbreaking sorrow. It's both there. So perhaps the recalling of that memory shifted his orientation of his meditation practice. Because at the time, again, with concentration meditation, it's choosing one object and becoming at one with it. Unification, absorption. And 
perhaps because of that memory, he entered into definitely some concentrated practice, but rather than moving into a place of complete absorption, unification, one-pointedness, he began to, his orientation of the practice began to be aware of the changing nature of things. You'll notice in the four foundations of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tones, mindfulness of the mind states, the dharmas, is always a reframe at the bottom. Each of these teachings about the meditation practice of the beginning and endings, the origination, the dissolution of phenomena, the coming and goings, the mark, the penetration of impermanence. And so he began to meditate but rather than moving into the place of absorption, he penetrated into the impermanent, changing nature of things. And so it said it gave rise to penetrating and powerful realizations that he had never experienced before. These became known later as the Four Noble Truths, but they were really realizations. They were understandings of the truth of suffering. The truth that there is causes of suffering, namely unawareness or ignorance that gives rise to cravings due to misconceptions of things, of looking outside of ourselves to find happiness, and that there's a way to experience the cessation of this suffering through the eradication of our ignorance, our cravings. Not that we can't enjoy things, but we have an understanding of things. I remember uh, the Thai, one of the beloved Thai forest master, Achan Cha, he used to have this teaching where he'd hold his favorite teacup and he'd say to everybody, I just love my teacup. I just love my teacup. I love my teacup. And so the students goes, goes Achan Cha, you, you always say that everything is, um, you know, not to have attachments, you have to have cravings. And yet you're saying, you're talking about how much you love your teacup. What's going on here? And he says, I love my teacup because I already know it's broken. But in the meantime, I'm going to enjoy it. And so I love, you know, so we can enjoy, but we also know it's nature. It comes, it goes. The last noble truth is the Eightfold Noble Path, which is really a profound and teaching of how do we live our lives to grow in wisdom. The development of living virtuously that sets the mind to steadying it, building our concentration that opens into deeper understanding and wisdom. And we'll be unpacking a lot of what I'm just saying here very briefly during this retreat of these realizations. So more to come on that. So I know that this has been a very sobering talk, and I hope that it does inspire, like, why are we here? Why are we here? And so I would really invite you, and I think the next on our thing here is... Uh, some walking practice is to maybe to reflect upon your heavenly messengers, who, who you've met, who's, who you've met in your life that has awakened you. Very briefly, my fourth heavenly messenger was this after flunking out of school. 
in college, where originally I was majoring in um, drinking beer, doing psychedelic drugs, and trying to have girlfriends and going skiing, and then getting a note from my college saying, um, you, you've been uh, funked out. <laughs> and my mother begging me, I had to call the college, and I was, uh, um, they let me back in on warning. And my mother begging me, isn't there something that you would like? And I really didn't know what I liked, but I was really sick of reading and writing and arithmetic and history and science, even though they're wonderful subjects. But I was very confused and lost because I had a lot of death early in life. And um, very confusing times for me with the Vietnam War and the Beatles grew their hair long. <laughs> and... Um, so my mother begged me, look at the course catalog, and I saw something that caught my eye, and it said, the wisdom of the East. Then there was a colon, and then there was a group of other words. I didn't even know how to pronounce them then. then now I do, of course, but it was Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. But I didn't know anything about that, but I knew the East had something to do with my belly that loved Chinese food growing up. That's just how ignorant I was. But I knew that I liked Chinese food, and I knew that that had something to do with the East. And I liked the vibe there. Very different than Howard Johnson's or Denny's. And I'll never forget going into that first class. Bill Jackson was my teacher. And he was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I had never seen a professor like this ever before in my life. This was in the mid-70s in the Northeast Kingdom of Northern Vermont. And the way that he spoke... And how he held himself. I'll never forget that first time I met him. Like, I, I sensed almost right away that this guy actually knew something. I didn't know what he knew, but I knew that he knew something, and I knew that I wanted to know what he knew. Because there was something in the way that he held himself. There, there was another way. She introduced me to the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And I was just so, just, the Tao Te Ching just swept my heart away. And particularly there's one, um, the epigrams, it says, there's no need, I'm paraphrasing, there's no need to look outside your window. Everything you need to know is inside you. I read that over and over, over, over and over again. There's no need to look outside your window. Everything you need to know is inside you. And I began to realize that if I wanted to know something, I needed to begin to look in here. And that was the beginning of, of my journey of, of meditation, of beginning to look in after being so lost and so confused for so many years. I got a chance to connect with Bill <laughs> Jackson on Facebook about 10 years ago. We began writing. He had left Linden State College in Lindenville, Vermont, got his PhD at Harvard in World Religions, ended up as a professor at Purdue University, and then retired. And, um, and I got to thank him. And as it turns out, he, about three months ago, he wrote me a note saying he's going to San Francisco. His, his daughter has moved there, and, he, and could we meet? And so we met at Dharma's in Santa Cruz, <laughs> Capitola, perfect place. 
And actually, just last couple of years ago, I was in China teaching, and I told them the story of how I got into meditation. And at the end, our host gave me a, a wooden scroll of the Tao Te Ching. It's this, these little scrolls all in wood. You have to open it up. It's just this relic of the Tao Te Ching. And it actually came with gloves. You have to handle it carefully. It's this really beautiful thing. And, and, um, and then last year I was in China and I actually, my friend brought me to where uh, Latsu wrote the Tao Te Ching. It was like this incredible place forever imprinted in my heart. So I got to, met him at Dharma's and I got to thank him. Like he might, I don't think he even knew how much that he meant to me. And then I gave him as a gift that Tao Te Ching. Thank you. Heavenly messenger. Each of us has had messengers, whether we know them personally or not. Maybe it's Mother Teresa and how she lived her life in such a way that I want to be like her too. I want to know something. We each have been touched. So with this walking practice, may you take up some time to walk and to reflect on these messengers that have touched your life, that have brought you here to practice. So let's just sit for a minute. just end with from Tsongkhapa that the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body, it is yours, it's one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know is the like a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Thank you so much for your heart and listening. So we'll go for walking. And again, um, this is an invitation. Walking with the messengers. Listen to them. Thank you. And I'm going to take a while to get my legs unfolded here. And <laughs> so I know fellow colleagues may be getting up, but feel free to, to come get up as you like. 